Hello, I'm Greg, and welcome to a talkback episode for Inappropriate Conversations number 66. It feels like with the heaviness and the baseline level of stress that's going on here in 2021, and frankly all of last year, it seems, felt like it was a time to lighten things up a little bit. I did something last week that I haven't done except for maybe once before. As I recall, maybe late July, early August of 2013, I released an audio promo in advance of a new Inappropriate Conversations podcast, and this time I released an audio promo uh, in the place of what might have been a brand new Inappropriate Conversations podcast, but I felt like I needed to say something to, to cast a forecast forward for what's to come, beginning with this particular talkback episode that's intentionally nostalgic and designed to lighten the load a little bit. I'm going to look back at my childhood, I'm going to look back at my children's childhood, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what happens, or where I'm concerned, anyway, that we don't give enough time, effort, credence, uh, leeway for true imagination. That a lot of times today, programs, and I've said this before on, on programs looking at um, television, for example, that if you took an existing I Love Lucy trope away from sitcoms, you might have undercut uh, as much as half of the sitcom episodes that are out there having been made in the last two or three decades and still being made now. That most of the movie projects, it seems like it's a lot of them anyway, are remakes of this, sequels to that, prequels to another. Everything is a variation on a theme. Everything is predetermined in advance on our behalf. Inappropriate Conversations, number 66, looks back at that with a critical eye, but shares positive stories along the way. It was originally released in August of 2011. Taking a look at uh, Child's Play and Imagination is what I called it, but it was really about remembering very specific things about the way me and my siblings would play, whether outdoors, at the creek, or indoors in the form of board games, or even redefining certain aspects of play, not allowing the Hot Wheels track to be used solely and exclusively for cars, for example. But as I mentioned in the, uh, in the promo last week, talkback episodes give me the ability to speak to current events in a way that I might not devote an entire show to normally, and I'd like to do that now. Now, the ideas that I want to share here are not brand new. Um, i probably remembered first expressing them myself uh, January 6th or 7th, uh, right in the aftermath of what a Trump-supporting mob did in an act of insurrection, sedition, and perhaps treason at the United States Capitol, taking up arms in various forms, including tasers and weapons, and using the American flag as a weapon, and murdering at least one police officer at the United States Capitol. So from my perspective, this was a big enough deal that it needed to be addressed, and I wasn't the only one speaking to it. On January 9th, for example, John Pavlovitz, a former different drummer, said this, I have met zero Republicans who can present a shred of evidence for election fraud. 63 lost court cases. Multiple fruitless recounts. That's the crime of Senator Hawley, Sean Hannity, Senator Cruz, and Laura Ingraham. They know that there is no fraud. And they are willing to kill people over a lie. So I don't presume the words I'm going to share from around that same time are in any way uh, new and particularly innovative. 
I did not take my inspiration from Pavlovitz, and I'm 100% sure he didn't take his inspiration from me, that we were posting these things at roughly the same exact time, because maybe the argument can be made that the argument I'm about to make is obvious. Now, another obvious point is, nothing I'm going to say, nothing I did say in January, is going to change the fact that enough uh, Republican senators voted against removing you know, President Trump from his, his, his position. Whether the position he was holding, which was no longer really a concern because he had already expired his term, or uh, his position in history as somebody who historically was not quote-unquote removed from office. This is no small matter. Many of those same Republicans, in fact, maybe most of those same Republicans who voted to acquit Trump, despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of the Senate voted to convict him and remove him from office, it wasn't that supermajority that the Constitution requires. But the majority of those who voted to look the other way and acquit uh, still haven't really come out and made the kind of forceful statement that this election was fairly decided, that there was no fraud, and allegations to the contrary are sedition and perhaps treason. There comes a point when you simply cannot continue to argue things like, quote-unquote, stop the steal, that recounts have been done, and questions have been answered, and cases have been reviewed, and other cases were deemed, including as recently as the day I'm recording by the United States Supreme Court, that there's no there there. There were not enough votes in dispute in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin and in other states, that even if 100% of the questions being raised by the Trump campaign, Trump and his supporters, were answered with, okay, we'll just throw those votes out, it wouldn't have made a difference. There weren't enough votes in dispute to change the election results in those states. So, where does that leave us? It leaves us in two places. First off, I've got a fundamental problem that has not been answered, even by a United States senator in the state where I live, to... Uh, I called him, left a message on his answering machine to say, you're going to need to justify to me why I shouldn't view you as a cop killer. Why I shouldn't view you as somebody who is part of a conspiracy to cover up the crime of murdering a Capitol Police officer, of siding with the seditionists. Because I do not give any credence to the argument that the United States Senate didn't have jurisdiction over a president whose term had uh, run its course and expired, especially not a president who refuses to acknowledge that he didn't win the election and is no longer the president of the United States. This was an opportunity for the Senate to set the record straight in a forceful way. And you could say, well, is that a, dr- a draconian way? I don't buy that for even one second. Because we've got to remember that this was, this was an invasion of our United States Capitol, where police officers were intimidated, overwhelmed, beaten, bloodied, and in one case at least, murdered. So... No, a a harsh retribution of that, Uh, even a retribution that says, had you still remained in office, you would be removed now. I mean, just make the issue moot, that even if at some point he scrounged up enough votes or succeeded in a coup d'etat, the United States Senate was prepared to stand up and say, doesn't matter, we've, we've removed you either way. But here's the problem. The Senate had more than enough time to conduct this trial and and have a vote while Trump was still in office. That is an actual, absolute fact. It is one of, to me, the best arguments for why the House managers presenting a case were perhaps wise to stipulate certain questions on the issue of witnesses. They were able to put 
during the debate over witnesses, a couple of statements into the record, and then just say, we're fine if you don't want to call witnesses, let's not have any witnesses. I personally, as somebody who was viewing the news and paying a lot of attention, would have liked to have had more eyewitness testimony, more evidence. I wouldn't have mind seeing the defense that the president's lawyers were mounting become even more comical and ridiculous, to be honest with you. But the entire trial wrapped up end-to-end in five days or less. It wrapped up end-to-end in, frankly, less than four days because one of the days, in fact, maybe one and a little bit more of the days, were devoted to a jurisdictional argument about whether or not it was appropriate for the Senate to hold a trial on impeachment after the former president was no longer in office. If you'd had the trial in the last week or so of the president's term, then there would have been no need to spend days debating about a jurisdictional question because that president would have been in office. And maybe he would have been removed two hours earlier. Maybe there would have been some ceremonial um, announcement that Trump had become the president of the United States no more and Pence was going to be taking over for 90 minutes, something like that. I mean, I said all along, I thought it was a very real possibility that Trump would resign rather than avoid certain consequences. And if he could have negotiated a deal to protect himself against legal consequences going forward, he might have voluntarily resigned. And I was never convinced that Joe Biden was running to be the 46th president of the United States. I at least thought there was a 30-40% chance he was actually incidentally running to be the 47th. And that didn't happen. But the fact of the matter is it could have. So an argument that this wasn't decided while the president was in office, therefore I can't vote to convict, is ridiculous. Because it was the same Republican Party in charge of the Senate at the time, the same leadership of that party, who decided, now we're just going to wait. We're going to wait until after his term is over. Well, you can't make a decision affirmatively to wait until after his term is over and then say that the fact that his term ended is a reason you can't vote to convict. The level of intellectual dishonesty here is staggering. But that is not even the thing that has me the most angry. The thing that has me the most angry is I've yet to see any sign that there's going to be consequences for the more than a handful of United States senators and more than a score of elected representatives in Congress who fed the flames of the insurrection, who, in my opinion, told the lies that the president was telling that outraged and inflamed the mob that he told to go fight, that he sent down the street, that his spokesman and lawyer told that it was time for combat. That I think it's probably beyond time that we should have removed the president from office, convicted, voted to never allow him to run for elective office again. And there's still an opportunity to do that in regards to the 14th Amendment. And I guess it's still the Congress putting its steps in the right order if its next move is a vote on the 14th Amendment. But I am going to be outraged, outraged beyond my ability to even articulate it, probably. If there aren't consequences for people who voted against certifying the election on the basis of evidence that did not exist. Let me walk it through this way, because ultimately it's an argument that several U.S. senators, and I think I'll focus my attention on Cruz and Holly, just like most other people do, but there's more where that came from who made an allegation that there was enough evidence of voter fraud and other irregularities that would stop them from performing a perfunctory constitutional duty to accept the electors, the votes of the electors of the various states. The argument goes something like this. 
there are really only a couple of possibilities here. If the claims of those, you know, leading a political insurrection behind the violent acts of sedition we witnessed on January 6th can be taken seriously. One possibility is that there is no evidence of voter fraud sufficiently admissible to lead a court to impose itself upon the election results in any state, despite dozens of failed lawsuits pursuing such an intervention. The other possibility is that you know, there is evidence, but let's get there when we get there. In the first notion that there, the evidence isn't there, which seemed obvious before January 6th and certainly seemed obvious on January 6th and is still obvious today, Everything to these people is a conspiracy. It's all rumor. It's conspiracy theory nonsense. It's been debunked. It's been disproven, or at least unworthy of even being disproven in courts of law. It is well and truly inadmissible. Given opportunities before judges to allege fraud, the president's lawyers backed down every time. They knew there was no fraud, and they didn't want to face legal and professional consequences for perjury, among other things. It doesn't matter how many people uh, suspect the world might be flat if they cannot or will not prove it isn't a sphere. And invading NASA and destroying documents wouldn't change that. The world is still a sphere. Anyone in Congress presenting this first notion um, that they have facts sufficient to delay the counting of electoral votes should face comparable consequences to what the attorneys who misled judges would have faced. In other words, they should be expelled from Congress if they're arguing that they've got facts and they've got evidence and they're, they're claiming fraud and they can't prove it. But there is another possibility. What if there actually is evidence? What if Holly and Cruz were, on January 6th, sitting on incredibly persuasive, well-documented, corroborative, admissible evidence. Maybe they didn't have as much as I'm implying, but whatever they did have was rock solid, undeniable, and meaningful enough to justify a delay in a constitutional process. Now, I don't mean any offense here to states like Nevada and Arizona, but it would have to be multiple states besides Nevada and Arizona, because those two states alone couldn't possibly justify such an unprecedented departure from the Constitution. But to play along, and the insufficient votes of, of Nevada and, and Arizona somehow have more support, and that the evidence of, of fraud is so overwhelming that uh, you could put the pieces together and combine enough states to make some sort of a difference. Okay, <clears throat> let's say that Trump and his supporters are right, and there is enough evidence in enough places to a sufficient degree to overturn an election, meaning more than 80,000 votes in Pennsylvania, not the 10,000 the Supreme Court was being asked to look at, even today, in late February. So, maybe, in fact, if we're playing hypotheticals, maybe there's enough evidence to justify the president's claim that he won the re-election in a landslide margin, meaning that instead of there being 80,000 votes in question in Pennsylvania, a landslide suggests that he might have actually been holding on to hard, concrete, admissible in court evidence of a million votes in each one of these states that were quote-unquote close or battleground in one way or another. Please understand when I say this, that I'm only offering a deferential point of view to this second idea to expose it for what it is. It is 
far worse. It's not just worse than, you know, standing up in the United States Senate, alleging that there's been fraud, knowing that there's no evidence, having no evidence to present, sparking a riot, fanning the flames, all that. I mean, that's terrible, right? But it would be far worse if there actually was evidence. And the people who could have presented the evidence had a court step in and intervene, chose not to because instead they would have preferred the insurrection. Let's think about that for a moment. In light of what happened on January 6th, both within the Senate and the House chambers of Congress and the treasonous mob behavior that, ling- behavior that lingered right outside the door and lingered out those, outside those doors for hours, if this isn't obvious, let me make it very clear to you. If the evidence of fraud and sweeping irregularities were real, then it should have been presented to courts. Judges should not have been told by Trump's attorneys that they weren't alleging fraud. It is a massive crime against justice and our Constitution that the details of such widespread evidence would have been concealed from courts, living solely in what seems to be baseless allegations rather than the presentation of facts and evidence. What purpose could there be in hiding evidence like this? Are Trump's attorneys and his supporters in Congress traitors? Not only to him, keeping evidence hidden, costing him the election, but also to the Constitution and the American people. If so, then the solution is at least expulsion from Congress for failing to fulfill their vows to uphold the Constitution of the United States. At least expulsion. Are some of these senators who spent Independence Day in Russia a few years ago truly acting as Russian spies? Interfering in an election by withholding evidence until it was too late, hurting Trump in the process? Many parts of that question are highly, highly doubtful. Perhaps all of it. Hard to say. This isn't even the worst part of the path pursued by Cruz, Holly, McCarthy, and others. I can think of only one other reason to withhold clear evidence of fraud that would logically overturn or throw into chaos the 2020 election results. What if they shouldn't be expelled from Congress for alleged, for alleged evidence they can't produce now and couldn't produce then because it doesn't exist to an even laughable evidentiary standard? What if it wasn't some old-school political betrayal of Trump to get him out back and take back the GOP for the old guard Republicans? What if instead the point of keeping the real, legitimate evidence of fraud out of courts at the crucial moment and away from state leaders who could have and maybe likely would have intervened after seeing these facts presented to them and even the media as a last resort, what if it was only designed to stoke paranoid delusions and turn a disappointed crowd of voters who narrowly lost a big election into an outraged mob seeking revenge, even to the extent of destroying a branch of government or at least parts of the building where those representatives work, with weapons and materials to handcuff, kidnap, and execute politicians they have been told are their enemies. With the intent of creating chaos sufficient to mortify the entire world, not just this nation, and perhaps fatally wound our founding constitution and the structures of our system of government. What if all this means that the evidence was real but withheld because it was more important to get a, for a mob to get wild on January 6th? And this Manchurian candidate approach was perhaps the best way to accomplish legitimate mayhem. In the original 1962 movie, The Manchurian Candidate, Senator John Iceland, he couldn't keep straight how many card-carrying communists were inside our government, 
but he he had the evidence and, and he could prove it, which he would do well later, not now, but not now, but but later, because the, but there's plenty of reason to be suspicious because he knew there were X number and X number turned into Y number turned into Z number. He couldn't keep his facts straight because the facts weren't important. All that was important to the fictional character in the original Manchurian Candidate was making an allegation. Now, a situation like this, playing a conspiratorial role in trying to overthrow our system of government, well, that would call for something far more aggressive than mere expulsion from Congress. I mean, either way, we're talking about a group of people who should be expelled from Congress. They either lied about evidence they didn't have on the, on the floors of the Senate and the House, or they were part of the conspiracy to overthrow this government by manipulating people in, in a mob to a frenzy in hopes that maybe... Those people would just kill the the vice president or just, you know, assault, if not successfully murdering the Speaker of the House, but just do a lot of damage to her that it would be enough justification for the then president to declare martial law, suspend the elections, try to reschedule a brand new election, and try to restrict who was allowed to vote. That would be an act of unprecedented treason, at least in the last 150 years of this country. No. Expulsion from Congress is too light a burden for someone who committed that particular crime, who had evidence and withheld it in hopes that the existence or suggestion of the evidence could lead to a violent overthrow of the United States government, or at least one of its branches. Now, now we're talking treason in every sense of the word, along with capital murder charges to go with the Capitol Police Department officer who was killed by the mob. The death penalty for dozens of elected officials would have to be on the table. Perhaps on the table to be plea bargained away for evidence that would root out not only the other criminal conspirators, but also the underlying fraud that, has been, that hasn't been addressed. Either because it isn't real, or because a treasonous plot has kept the documents, videos, photographs, and eyewitness testimony concealed for some reason. That for some reason, every time a judge said, are you alleging fraud, the answer was somehow no. Well, why is that? So congressional leadership has some pressing responsibilities in the very near future. I would say they're already late in getting it done. And I wonder if the reason they're late is they don't have the stomach for it. All the elected officials, every one of them, who fanned the flames of this insurrection would talk of voting irregularities or other reasons to fail in their constitutional responsibilities. Well, they should be called to a fast-track ethics hearing with one question to answer. Can you produce for me the so-called evidence and immediately or immediately explain why you can't? You've alleged fraud. You've alleged, you know, on the on the floor of the Senate, on the floor of the House, that there was reason, there was evidence that would lead you to not certify the election results from November 2020. Great. Immediately produce the evidence. Or explain why you can't. If they can't produce the evidence then the proper consequence is expulsion from Congress. From Congress, State senators can find someone more patriotic to fill those spots. Someone who isn't a liar would be nice. At the very least, somebody who does not actively engage in conduct unbecoming the United States Congress. If they can produce the evidence, now, too late, then the only chance I see of avoiding charges like sedition, treason, inciting a riot, giving aid and comfort to the enemies of the United States and its Constitution, and perhaps accessory to multiple counts of murder, is to offer a better explanation than the ones I have offered here for why such evidence would be talked about ad nauseum but never 
produced in a venue where the producing of the evidence would lead to meaningful action, as opposed to violence, destruction, mayhem. Insurrection is the nice word for it. Maybe it's just flat-out treason. There is no way of slicing this that isn't ultimately a betrayal of our country by people who have, over several years in most cases, sworn multiple oaths to defend it. That is why, for the good of the nation, dozens of elected officials should do the right thing and resign from political office. And if they don't, then the leaders of both the House and the Senate should immediately raise the ethics council that I've just described, because the American people deserve to know the answer to the question. Is there actual admissible evidence of the kind of fraud and voting irregularities that were alleged? Are there documents we can look at? Is there photographic evidence? Is there forensic evidence? Is there evidence that you could admit in court or not? If there's not, these men are liars, women and two, and should be expelled from Congress. And if there is evidence, and if that evidence was hid for the reasons I suspect it was, well, now we're talking about a very different thing. Now we're talking about death penalty offenses. As you can see, there's a very good reason why I was willful and intentional about spending the balance of the month of February, maybe even slipping into early March, with a deep cleansing breath and a desire for a simpler time, a desire for a nice, you know, cozy piece of nostalgia. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about child's play with vinegar, marbles, crickets, and more. Beyond any doubt, there's going to be some nostalgia in this particular inappropriate conversation, but there is a purpose behind it. I wanted to look at the question of uh, where I've come from, so I want to talk somewhat about my childhood, my background, but also about my kids and efforts that I made, perhaps successfully, perhaps not, to bring some of the things from my childhood into, into their lives and introduce them to my kids. And, you know, sometimes it really took off and, and was great, and I'll, I'll tell some of those good stories, and sometimes not so much. And I think the concern that I have in the back of my mind is that the difference between playing, literally child's play, when I was a kid... And what I've seen from my own kids and what I've seen since then is that there is a great threat right now to the world of imagination. It's as if, you know, today when you go to the store, you buy a toy, the toy has the story built in that you don't have a lot of room on your own to build on top of that or to change it. And I realize that a kid with an active imagination isn't going to follow the story that comes in the box. But it's the difference, I would say, between the way Legos used to be, where there were some that were slanted and some that were, you know, squares and some that were rectangles. But at the end of the day, 
a Leica looks like a Lego. And we weren't buying a lot of collections when I was a little kid that had any sort of uh, picture on the front as to what it was supposed to look like. Your parents bought Lego blocks in lots of different colors and a fairly good quantity, and you became the architect. That's a far cry from buying a Star Wars Lego set where there's specialized pieces with particularly rounded shapes and other shapes because you're supposed to build exactly what it looks like on the box. It's not that I didn't build my Lego Starship Enterprise. We all did. It's just that my saucer section was you know, more often than not square. That was the piece that I could find that got closest to it. And the nacelles were definitely square. But it could still fly. If you carried it around on your hand and made the appropriate sound effect that you wanted for the whooshing by of a spaceship, it didn't have to look perfect. That was the, the whole point of imagination, as a matter of fact. And I see some of that being lost today, where even the very nature of toys like Transformers, the story is built in and the shapes are built in. So I want to deal with a little bit of you know, where am I coming from? What did I experience when I was growing up? And how is it different than what you tend to see today? In this day and age, of course, I think if you sent your kids out to play in the same way that I was sent out to play as a child, you'd be taking a massive risk and your neighbors would probably consider you to be an irresponsible parent. There were uh, no GPS systems back then, and my mom and dad did not presume to know my exact location at every given point in time. It was enough to know that I had gone to the school, where there were fields where you could play soccer or football or baseball or whatnot, or to the creek. We'll get to the creek in a minute. But first, part of the inspiration comes from a blog that I encountered called Three to One, and you know, this is one of these nice moments of serendipity that have come from being more of a presence online than I've ever been before with this inappropriate conversations show. I received feedback, very positive, encouraging feedback on iTunes from a listener a while ago. And, you know, I have not had a, um, a show since then of, uh, you know, kind of responding to points and questions. So I haven't had a chance on this show to talk too much about that, but knowing that, me and this listener are also together listeners of other shows made it possible a few weeks ago, I guess now for me to encounter her blog. It's not that there was any sort of, um, I am enjoying your show. Here's mine kind of an exchange. It's just that I knew enough about her from a first name basis and a location that when I saw a comment with that name on it on Another blog that I read, because it's you know written by one of the Starbase 66 presenters, the Starbase 66 connection brought me to hers. And on the 3 to one blog, I was struck by going all the way back to the introducing uh, post that she did at some of the commonalities. Um, she refers to her husband uh, having been somebody she met in high school. Well, I met my wife in high school. Uh, her husband played percussion, as did I. She played flute. Now, my wife and I met in rival high schools, but it's something really special about having a connection that drifts all the way back that far in time. Now, in her case, there was an interruption. There was some years, um, many years of not dating, of not being a couple in any way. And my wife and I were a couple pretty early on and stayed that way. But I was just, I was struck by that. And the, the mission of her blog, or one of the things about her blog, the meaning of three to one is that she's the mother of two sons, so that in her household, it's three males to one female. And a lot of her posts, a lot of the most charming ones, in fact, are about the uh, the joys and challenges of raising 
two young boys. So it drew, drew me back in my mind to what it must have been like, first off, for my mom and my dad, dealing with me and my older brother and, and my younger sister as well, and some of the things that we would get into, the things that we would do, and some of those things I thought enough of or I cared enough about to bring back and introduce them to my kids. And honestly, that's the gist of this show. It's called Child's Play. This episode is just going to be that. I may repeat in about a week a similar theme and take it up into teenage years, but not so much my own teenage years, teenage years from the perspective of of the working public and interacting with kids during that time. So I may um, advance this particular thought process further, but I do want to begin at the time when I was very young maybe even as young as five or six years old with an older brother who was, you know, 10 or so and a younger sister who was, you know, you know, a couple years younger. And that sort of age range made us an interesting clan if we would go and do things together. And one of the things that we would do is go to the Creek. We had a Creek running through our uh, neighborhood that ran right past the elementary school that we attended. And I've recently had a chance to go back to the old house as the Smiths would say. And, um, you know, I, I enjoyed seeing the old neighborhood, but one of the things that disappointed me was that what had been really a, kind of a natural habitat for some small fish, minnows mainly, and crawdads, uh, crayfish, for want of a better word, and other sorts of, you know, water spiders and sort of crickets and stuff, because it was literally a creek running through with, you know, dirt underneath it and grass growing around it, has been cemented over. It is still... There for the purpose of letting um, storm drain, you know, rain drain away. It's simply the runoff from the rain that falls in the streets uh, in this part of town. But it struck me that now it's probably more effective than it's ever been before because it's cement and the water is going to travel through in a more streamlined manner. But when I was a kid, it was a habitat. It was quite literally a habitat. You could run into anything there from squirrels and you know, perhaps chipmunks to um, bugs, uh, crickets, certainly, grasshoppers, wasps, locusts, those sorts of things, crayfish, because the pond never got deep enough for you to have any trouble. My mom was always worried. You know, what about the flash floods? What about the flash floods? And she was worried about the flash floods on a sunny day without a cloud in the sky. But the reality was that as long as it wasn't raining, and there was no real risk of it raining elsewhere in town where the, you could see from the clouds that rain was falling and that some of that rain was going to get into this creek. The creek never got more than a foot deep. Now, as I've mentioned on a previous inappropriate conversation, you can drown in less than a foot of water. But yeah, not with your older brother there to look out for you. Not with your younger sister there to tattle on every little thing you might do, whether it's dangerous or not. We would go down to the creek. At first, when we were very young, we'd go down to the creek and catch crickets. And I never really knew until my brother pointed out to me that there was multiple varieties of crickets. So long before I was far enough along in elementary school to have a biology class that was going to wander us through all the different you know, genus and species of insects, I'd always thought, well, a cricket's a cricket. You know, it's a, a very noisy bug that doesn't bite, that um, drives mom crazy when it's in the house that in the dark or when the lights are just on, hard to distinguish a roach from it, which is the disturbing part. The only downside to my mind, because I think hopping insects are much more um, endearing 
than flying insects or crawling insects. And by capturing a fair number of crickets in this creek, we were able to divide them up. And just based on what their body type looked like or the way their exoskeletons were, we could divide them up into types. Now, I never became an entomologist. I have no idea what the actual types were. But I could tell the difference between crickets that had what I would consider horizontal lines going from head to the tail part of their body versus vertical lines and kind of had a sense of, you know, the fact that they, you know, in some ways behaved a little bit differently. My brother at one point had some sort of a medicine bottle. Uh, it was a capsule of some sort. As far as we were concerned, it was a capsule. And we were at the time of year, you know, maybe early, you know, early fall. Uh, it was past the point when we were swimming in the um, upright uh, above ground swimming pool in the backyard. And there was only about, you know, two feet of water that we were in the process of just letting evaporate, getting ready to drain that pool and disassemble it. And my brother would, uh, he got at one point, got uh, one of these medicine bottles or whatever it was, and found a way to put some ballast in the back of it and cushion. So some gauze or some cloth or whatever, to where there was a compartment in the front where a cricket could be placed with plenty of oxygen and without getting crushed, but a place in the back where you could put enough weight that you could sink this into water, tied a string to the front, and we would send crickets around the pool in a submarine, you know, a sort of underwater adventure crickets where uh, back then medicine bottles sealed pretty tightly. Um, they weren't um, the child lock types we have today where there was always some sort of uh, air able to get into those types because you would squeeze them to turn them. Now, these were the kind that would snap shut. And, of course, we never lost a cricket to any sort of undersea disaster. But uh, that was the kind of thing that we would do. It was, that was sort of a way to play and a way to play outside. And I guess my mom just had to get used to the idea that we're going to be playing outside with bugs. I remember one trip to Chicago where we were playing with cousins who had a very large sandbox. I mean, this sandbox had to be four foot wide by 16 feet long, or at least it seemed that way to me as a kid. And uh, so as you were pulling up the driveway, right next to it was this big sand area. And, you know, you could get in there with um, shovels and pails and cups and build castles and things of that nature. But one of the things we noticed during that trip was that there were a lot of ants, in the sandbox. So you couldn't stay in one place for too long because these ants were not friendly. They were red ants that I would say were probably um, at their biggest, maybe a quarter of an inch long um, and black ants that were just a little bit smaller, but in that same ballpark, you know, a millimeter or two on the small side to maybe a, you know, between an eighth and a quarter of an inch long on the big side. So you could see the bigger ones coming, but you didn't necessarily see everything that was going on around you in the sandbox. And I can remember at one point us trying to figure out whether the red ants and the black ants would interact in a productive and healthy way. And as you know, boys will be boys and, well, frankly, kids will be kids. We found out that the red ants and the black ants didn't need much provocation to fight with each other. And it wasn't long before we got in trouble for gathering the ants up by color, literally by color, and seeing which ones were the... Uh, we're the more potent fighting force. So you have the whole playing with bugs, whether it be in a sandbox or in a creek. And it was only later when my, I think my brother got a microscope or my older sister got a microscope that I figured out that if you went to the same creek and gathered a sample of water, there was another whole level of bugs on a microscopic level underneath that. And uh, it wasn't 
unusual for us to be you know, looking at a microscope, trying to find things like paramecium and euglena. So the uh, fun with bugs would be one whole category. Another whole category, though, and this tying into the, the notion of imagination, is that we would play board games in a couple of different ways. As kids, me and my siblings, we would play you know games like Monopoly and so forth the way the rules recommended that you do it. Uh, in fact, there was a recent uh, Nerd Hurdles episode uh, called Board Games, I think spelled B-O-R-E-D, with uh, Kennedy from Starbase 66 as a guest. And Kennedy was describing the kinds of board games that my parents had. We called them bookcase games because they fit in a box that would stand upright and look a little bit like a volume of an encyclopedia. And one of them, I have a copy, my sister has a copy, called Lie, Cheat, and Steal. It's concept not unlike Monopoly. But what it brings to the table is that instead of buying property and charging people rent, your politicians trying to win elections and you actually buy votes and blackmail your opponents. Um, at the time, it seemed like an outrageous game, an over-the-top exaggeration of, of politics at its worst. Now, it just looks like the evening news in a lot of ways. But the other one that we had was outdoor survival. Tying again, tying in with that, uh, you know, creek theme and fresh water kind of idea, because this was the first time looking in this microscope, first time in my life that it dawned on me that that water wasn't all that fresh, that there were things swimming about. And of course, you know, as true junior wannabe scientists inspired by how much we enjoyed shows like Star Trek and cartoons like Johnny Quest, we did set up some control studies where we would, uh, you know, compare the tap water, for example, to the creek water or the rainwater running down the street to what would be in that virtually that same water if we went out and picked it up from the creek, you know, a few days later. So, you know, those sort of uh, adventures were taking place. But the board game Outdoor Survival tied into that because this board game was literally how long can you survive in the desert, in the mountains, and you know, in the wilderness, in the forest, if you don't find fresh food and fresh water. And it might have been the most difficult board game I ever played, because if you played it right, under the strictest set of perhaps what you might call the adult rules, uh, it was not unusual to have a game where everyone dies, where if you're going to declare a winner, the winner is the person who died last, because a roll of the dice determines how many squares you can move. But a roll of the dice over the mountains, you you there's parts of the game, in other words, where you have to roll a six just to get anywhere. So you have one die. How big does the number have to be to advance or crossing a desert or things of that nature? So we played board games the right way, but we also played board games the wrong way. This was more my younger sister and me. And this is a segue into my own kids because my kids and I have played this exact quote unquote game in the same way. At some point, we found a box in the garage or somewhere that had pieces of all kinds of games that were no longer complete. So we had an earlier kind of busted up version of Clue where we had the board and maybe some of the tokens, but nothing else. Or maybe we had the candlestick and the dagger, but we didn't have the rope anymore. You know, that sort of thing. And we had pieces and parts of all kinds of games. It wasn't just Clue. We had a board for Sorry. We had a board... I don't know what the game was called, but it was sort of a ducks and cats game, where as you're going around the board to play, um, 
the cats wanted to be under the umbrellas at all times, and the ducks wanted to be in the rain at all times. So you basically have this this board game where there's four sides, and it's raining on all four sides. So from the center of the board, rain is falling onto the edges where the squares are that you play as a player. And theoretically, if the player you've chosen to be is a duck, when you get under the umbrella, you lose a turn. If you're the cat... When you get under the um, when you get out of the umbrella and you get in the water on you, you lose a turn. The notion being that cats don't like water, and uh, perhaps the mistaken notion that ducks can't handle being dry—that's actually not true. But we would string all these board games together. The Hot Wheels board game was one where it was basically a game where you were going around an elaborate racetrack of sorts. And what we would do is we'd put these boards back to back to back to back, and we would literally put tokens on and just roll dice and just see how long it would take you to get through eight different playing board games. You weren't playing by the rules. You weren't buying property in Monopoly. You weren't um, you know, worried about collecting cards in Candyland. But Candyland was really a big determiner of who would win or lose this game because there's a couple of shortcuts in that game that if you make those shortcuts, you're going to have to play uh, – we have to have unlucky rolls of the dice, let's put it that way, to not turn around and win and ultimately win. Casper's Haunted House was one of them, and we called it Around the World because we were literally playing all of these different board games and jumping from board to board with with no more elaborate goal than seeing who could take their token all the way through and get to the end. If I'm not mistaken, I believe the beginning of the board was Clue, where we would we would either draw a card or we'd we'd cast a lot or something and decide which room was the portal out of the game of Clue. We started our little stations, Colonel Mustard in his spot, so forth and so on, and whoever could get to that room first was the first one to jump off that board and jump onto Candyland. Most of the rest of the games had a more obvious start and stop pattern to them. You know, the Lone Ranger game literally says start at the beginning, and I believe end, or the end, at the end. So, you know, when you're first introducing this idea to your kids, and of course it helps to do it when they're quite young, because... It's completely and inordinately silly. It's off the scale weird. And my kids had a disadvantage that I didn't have because short of some of the big name games like Candyland and Clue, most of these games they'd never seen performed properly. I mean, I can't remember the rules to the Lone Ranger game. And we weren't really abiding by the rules anyway. We would stop on a square that was marked differently than all the others. And instead of, you know, rolling the dice or drawing a card or whatever the real game would have you do, we just said if you stop there, then you've lost a turn. Or in some cases, if you stop there, then you, you get a bonus roll or something of that nature. So we would play around the world. And I remember the kids having a good time with it because it didn't necessarily seem as hopeless as the end of a game of Monopoly or Clue or something like that might seem. There's a, a helpless sense in a game like Risk that lingers. And it's hard for somebody who's pretty young, probably younger than the game is ideally built for, to handle. But e even Battleship, uh, if you're losing, you know you're losing. And it can make the end of the game drag on and on and on. So what did my kids um, enjoy more than that from my childhood? Well, there's a few things that go without saying, uh, you know, you know, Legos were, were always popular. Cooking, believe it or not, is a popular activity to do with kids. If your kids have any interest in science, if they enjoy exploring, there is something about just fixing something like scrambled eggs or macaroni and cheese that to a young kid feels like you're in the basement of the science building, 
you know, creating, you know, making your own life, you know, you're, you're creating something that's going to have value to it simply by being engaged in the act of combining the ingredients that are ultimately going to turn into cookies or a brownie or something of that nature. Now, I want to cite two particular examples of things um, that me and my kids did together that ties directly back to my childhood and it always makes me smile. One of them is vinegar and the other one is marbles. I get to the marbles last because it might be my favorite story. And I will only say that this doesn't involve shooting marbles or collecting or gambling or wagering with them. It doesn't involve running the risk of losing them or harming them in any way. No, we treated these marbles like they were pure gold, like they were our team, so to speak. But we'll get to marbles in a minute. First with vinegar. I don't remember the first time I realized what vinegar and baking soda would do together. It could have been when my older brother, using those same types of medicine bottles, would combine the two ingredients and wait for the lid to pop. It could have been that. It could have been when either my older brother or older sister uh, put a significant amount of vinegar and baking soda into an old shampoo bottle, put a balloon on the end of it, and demonstrated that you could blow up a balloon with what was coming out of the bottle, and that what was coming out of the shampoo bottle wasn't um, helium, of course, and but it wasn't oxygen either. It wasn't an air mixture. It wasn't breath. It wasn't oxygen, nitrogen. It had way more carbon dioxide in it than that, because that's what was being put off by the combination of vinegar and, uh, and baking soda. And at one point, we had a, a locust, I think it was, that was, it was pretty badly injured. We found it in the yard, having, it was cut up by the mower, or perhaps by our neighbor's lawnmower, and it was still kind of rattling away the way a locust does, but it was not in good shape at all. And in my mind, having seen the explosive qualities of vinegar and baking soda put together, I think I thought I was putting it out of its misery if I were to drop it into a cup with the vinegar-baking soda combination and have it fizz up. And sure enough, it fizzed up like I thought it would. When it receded, like I thought it was, the, the bug was just absolutely, you know, stiff as a board, done for. And I pulled it out of the liquid, set it on a paper towel, making a mental note to throw it away before mom found out that I'd brought a dying bug into her kitchen. And much to my alarm at the time, not seeing this coming at all, and being a fan of the fine acting work of Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, I immediately assumed that the bug had come back to life and perhaps had not appreciated being uh, doused and uh, being put out of its misery in that particular manner. It really took me a while, and I don't know, you know five, six years old, for my brother to persuade me that um, the bug was not dead and that it had not died and come back to life and was not out to get me, but I hadn't killed it at all. I had simply immersed it so completely in carbon dioxide that I'd knocked it out. And then now, in addition to suffering the pain of having part of its body gone from some sort of a you know lawn care accident, it was also probably dealing with a pretty bad headache, perhaps even a pretty bad hangover. But it was learning about what vinegar and baking soda do that led me to, and again, I had no idea where this came from, but at some point along the way, my brother and I, or my sister and I, decided that it would look really interesting. It would be really a cool thing to see if you got a very flat and open glass vase, maybe four or five inches high. It reminded me of the kind of terrarium that we would use when we had newts when I was in college. Early on in college, you know, we went to the pet store. We didn't, we weren't fish people. My roommate liked fish. I wasn't, I wasn't into fish. 
But we got a, a shallow terrarium. Again, we have four or five inches deep, not that far around. Fill it up with water about halfway, put in some, you know, some decorative sort of stuff, and, and the newts would hang out because newts, salamanders, live under the water but breathe air. So you have that sort of vibe. And it was that kind of a container. Untended glass, so you have a really good view of everything that you're seeing. And what we would do is we would place uh, a layer of, of just cooking oil, vegetable oil. Heck, back then it was probably animal fat, but of oil in the bottom. Then we would put the vinegar in on top of it. And, you know, for those of you who, you know, have done this before or, or can even guess, based on the consistency of vinegar and oil, what happens is that the vinegar settles in the bottom and the layer of oil rests on top and that the two really don't merge um, at all because of the consistency of the two liquids. And then we would get, um, you know, maybe an, an inch of vinegar at the bottom and an inch and a half or a little more than an inch of the oil in a strip now in the middle of this glass bowl, then we would get food coloring. And when you drop different um, drops, not streams, just little drops trying to, to dribble it out, the food coloring drops into the oil. And if the oil is you know of the consistency that it was when I was a kid, it doesn't get through to the vinegar. And what happens is as soon as the drop hits the oil, the oil locks it into a spherical, almost disc-like like spherical shape that we would call cells. Not really having that good of a notion what, a, what shape a cell was. We weren't using an electron microscope. But it would lock them into these circular disc-like, almost spherical shapes. And we would scatter them all over the oil level in this particular vase. And then once you were satisfied that you had you know, not too much color, but the right amount of color in the right amount of places. It would just take one heaping teaspoon or heaping tablespoon full of baking soda to create the trouble. Now, at first, yeah, we would just plop some in. Later on, we would get a little older and wiser. We might plop a less pronounced dose into two different parts of the oil on one side of the bowl and the other, and then sprinkle a little bit more on top. But either way, what essentially happens is that the oil, like it does with the food coloring, wraps itself around this powder and to a pretty large degree protects the integrity of the powder itself as the powder being now heavier seeps through the oil, does what the little drops of food coloring couldn't do, breaks through to the bottom level where the vinegar is, and by and large, taking a lot of the coloring with it. What you end up with now is this level of vinegar that is now interacting with the baking soda and creating all the bubbles, all the, all the reactions and the release of the carbon dioxide and the oil trying to stay in the middle, unable to hold this down. It creates a tornadic whirlwind of activity where the gas forces its way up in swirls through the oil and out bubbling over the top of, of the mixture. And then of course, if you have, you know, more baking powder sprinkled on top, that gets gobbled in and brought back down and kind of repeats the reaction. And you literally end up with, you know, sort of a cyclonic view through the oil because the oil remains golden colored enough to see through. So you can see the, what happens and how the uh, pieces of uh, food coloring combine, but also explode and get, you know, pushed up to the top and drawn back down to the bottom. You know, it's exciting to view. And if you do it wrong, a really big mess. And if you do it really, really wrong, a big mess on a tablecloth that mom didn't want ruined. Quarantine,
Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. I'm a pretty big sports fan. And at some point, I may talk about um, sports the way I like them. It's hard to get in the mood to do that when one of my favorite sports right now has been engaged in a labor dispute all summer long. But there is a sport that I never really got that much into, and it's the entire realm of auto racing. Now, I have friends in Europe who will tell me that I just haven't seen it done right, and they might be right about that. Perhaps Formula One would interest me in a way that driving around in a circle just doesn't do it. And drag racing, again, seems like a lot of buildup for a fairly short amount of actual real sporting competition. But despite that, um, we had Hot Wheels. We had the Hot Wheels game, which I mentioned earlier, um, and Hot Wheels track. And back when I was a kid, Hot Wheels track seemed, again, more cool than it does today. There was a lot of room for imagination, for one thing, because the parts were completely and totally interchangeable. They were designed to help you build a big loop so you could race cars around and around and around. But you didn't have to. You could create tracks that went and meandered from one room to the other. And depending on how you chose to do it, whether you had what we used to call the sizzler that would shoot the car through and give it some juice and move it around, or whether you just used gravity and had a place in the track where you started the car very high and then another place where you, you know, gave it a bit of a shove or a boost, you could create tracks that weren't in any way oval in design. But as much fun as it was to mess with cars, that was really more my older brother's thing. By the time the Hot Wheels were essentially handed down to me, the track was, you know, by and large in good enough shape to support cars, but often the cars weren't. Now, part of that was my fault. I would take, you know, five or six cars at a time and draw them off into, uh, you know, a three-on-three game of, you know, demolition derby or football or something where you crashed, you know, one of the cars as the presumable ball carrier and you crash the others together and see if you know, the car could be turned over and, and that would be the end of the down and you start another down, that sort of thing. So I did a lot of damage myself. But really, the most fun I ever had was with Hot Wheels track was not racing cars. It was racing marbles. And this was more my younger sister's thing, she and I. And it's worth telling the story, even if the story takes you know, a, a little while to do. Because the problem with Hot Wheels, if you can remember seeing them, and I'm thinking about the orange-colored track, if you want to get a mental image of what I'm, I'm talking about, is that you would have two different tracks, and the cars would each be on their own side of the track. There was no way for you to really know that it was the same thing as what you were seeing on the Indy 500, for example, because in the Indy 500, cars passed each other by getting across each other's, you know, track, literally, for want of a better word. And on Hot Wheels, that just didn't happen. If you were you know, wanted to race the inside track every time, you were going to have an advantage because your car didn't have to go as far around. There was no mixing and matching. Like you see in Olympic speed skating, where each skater will spend a certain amount of time on the inside track and a certain amount of time on the outside track to where when the race is complete, they've done the identical distance. You, you couldn't do that very well in Hot Wheels. But one line of track could hold two marbles, and two standard size marbles have no problem racing side-by-side, front, 
or back or passing each other. The best way to engineer marbles passing each other is not a drag racing mentality where you have one long strip of track and it's simply whichever marble has the best sort of mass and density wins. It's more putting in curves, perhaps multiple curves in the race, because it is in the way different marbles go around curves that they pick up the kind of momentum they need and get angles on each other to pass each other. Now, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the marble that's in the front will slow down and the marble behind will come out of the curve, bump the marble in front, pretty much secure its victory and leave itself kind of dead in the water on the track. But just as often as you'd see that, you'd see one marble either jump ship altogether or passing. And again, depending on how many curves you had and you know, how you were set up, you might see passing multiple times along a stretch of race. On a trip to South Texas, when I was very young, my uncle, who was a good number of years older than my father, the distance between the youngest in my family and the oldest in my family was maybe six years. But um, the distance between my, my father and his brother was, was more than that. Um, and there were just the two of them. He had in his shed a whole set of what he described as World War I marbles. And he was using that point in time, that moment in history, to make a distinction and say, these came from the point in time when marbles were made the right way. And in his mind, in the 19, maybe 60s or 70s, at some point along the way, marbles weren't being made the right way anymore. Whether that's because they weren't being made by hand, or they weren't being infused by genuine minerals to give them their color and their vibrancy, or what? I was too young, but if I were to tell you today that I was going to pull out a bag of marbles, and you're young enough, younger than me anyway, I would totally understand why your mental image would be a group of relatively clear marbles with a fairly standard set of colors where all of them look more or less close to each other, if not even identical to each other. Because if you were to go to the store and buy a bag of marbles today, that's probably what you'd get. They might have a green tint to them. They might have a really clear tint to them. But generally speaking, the kind of marbles that people would shoot marbles, big marbles against small marbles and, and play in a circle, it didn't really matter what the marble looked like. But these marbles, the ones that were given to us by my uncle, these marbles were unique. They were very different. Uh, in baseline color, some of them you could see through, some of you couldn't. And my little sister and I gave them names. Now, much to my surprise, decades later, digging through a box of my old stuff and you know, seeing if there was anything that I had in my box of old stuff that would be good toys for my kids versus dangerous toys for my kids. And let's be honest, there's a fair amount of that, too. But in the, in the toys that were good enough for kids of a certain age to play with, we found these marbles. And as I'm pulling them out, I'm remembering their names. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And not only am I remembering the names, I'm pretty much remembering which one of my siblings or me named them. My favorite marble was called Springfield. It was a, a pale yellowish green, more green than yellow, with, you know, some regular sort of Kelly green splotches in it. And I never saw another marble like it. My little sister named one Magic, and it was essentially kind of a sparkling see-through orb of a color with a deep dark blue almost so dark you couldn't see through it. But again, as I mentioned, it was an orb. It looked like kind of a very dark blue crystal ball. 
My older sister named one Gandalf. There were marbles that we, you know, you look at the marble, you could tell the name. We named it the brain because frankly, it looked weird. It looked kind of like a human brain in this cylindrical piece of glass. Um, and so we would, the ones that we could name, and we also would race others because you have to have lots of marbles to do this right. So you have the standard um, Chinese checkers marbles that are a little bit smaller, and you give them the obvious name, red, green, blue, white, because that's all they are, just solid, solid color. And we take all the ones we'd have named and we would race them. And at first we would just do the, you know, down a long carpeted hallway uh, where our bedrooms were, just race them all the way down the hall. And a little later we figured out that it was much cooler if you could actually get some kitchen chairs together and create sort of a, a high and low sort of approach where there was a great deal of velocity and even loop-de-loops because there's Hot Wheels that does loop-de-loops as well and race them that way. It didn't matter what the course looked like, but as you change the course you actually ended up changing the results. And if you raced the same marbles against each other often enough, it wasn't hard to figure out which the best ones were. And for us, my little sister and I, way back when, the best marbles, maybe that's why I remember the names, were Springfield and Magic. Her marble, Magic, my marble, Springfield. So I'm sharing these marbles with my kids, and it dawns on me at a certain point, something takes over that's kind of weird as a parent, because... You're kind of handing it down to your kids, but you're kind of not handing it down to your kids at the same time. I can't explain it. I just, I just know what it feels like, and I know that it's true. And in the process, I was pulling out the ones that were named. I was you know, telling them about just, you know, what we could do with them, and, and if we could get some track, we could race them. Through a combination of hand-me-downs and maybe even some eBay purchases, we picked up enough track that we could create the kinds of race courses that I remembered liking as a kid. And when I was a kid, we never had an upstairs. When I was this young, the house we lived in didn't have an upstairs. So um, the house that my kids were in at the time was sort of a quad in its layout. So we had the ability to to race up multiple kinds of stairs. And what you'd find is that having a long staircase really wasn't all that cool anyway, because the further up you go with the track, when you let the marble go, all you're doing is guaranteeing that it's going to jump off the track as soon as it gets to what is essentially the ground floor. So there's a, there's a balance on how high up to go and how many curves and loops you can put in before the marbles don't actually race to the end of the track. Cause that's what you want. You want the winner to be either the marble that leaves the track at its designated end first, or to put maybe some um, notebook paper down and which marble gets to the end and races to the end of the, of the notebook paper first. So I'm pulling out the marbles and saying, here's Springfield, here's the brain, here's Gandalf, here's, you know, all the, all the ones we'd named. And my, my daughter, who is my oldest, picked out a blue marble, slightly bigger than the rest, um, with an, with an irregular color scheme, it was good and clean round, but it wasn't pure blue. It you know, was definitely not magic. It had a design to it, but I couldn't for the life of me remember anything about the marble. She asked me what it was called because, you know, endearingly, both my kids were very willing to call these marbles exactly what my sister and brother and I had called them. And I said, I didn't think that it had a name. And she looked at me like, if I name it, it's going to be mine, right? And said, let's call him Frank. Now, my daughter is very competitive. And that's a good character trait, but it also can be a bad character trait. And what I wanted to do was make sure that she understood that she needed to be prepared mentally for what it would mean. If the marble that she had just picked and that she'd named and that she sort of claimed as her own wasn't all that successful, 
Because theoretically, after all the years of trial runs and drag races and competitions and tournaments, I figured the ones that I remember the names of were probably the best marbles. So I tried to do my best to downplay her expectations. If Frank's going to be okay, but he's probably not going to be that great. But the, the reality is there was no dissuading her. She wanted Frank to be her marble, that she was going to race Frank, and that and Frank was going to win. Again, very competitive. Frank was going to win. And maybe it's because my, my sister and I, when we were little, didn't have that many curves. So maybe this is just, you know, well, it's definitely just physics, right? Um, no magic going on here. But in the course of creating a racetrack course with more than one curve in it, this marble, which because of it being bigger, you'd think would have a pretty good run if it could build up some momentum, never would really do that well in the straightaway. It was, it was okay. It was in the middle. It would finish in the middle of the pack. If you raced every marble head-to-head multiple times, it would come somewhere in the middle. And the one curve where you send the marble down the track, it does a 90 degree, comes back towards you, and the finish line is not that far from the starting line. You know, Frank was... You know, it's just okay there as well. But what we found was when you gave a loop-de-loop or two different sets of curves, this marble that my daughter had picked out for herself was an unstoppable force. In all the racing we did of marbles when my kids were very little, the only the only times that Frank would lose would be either to Springfield or Magic. But Frank won a lot more races than Frank lost. In fact, I can remember the first time that Frank did not finish in first. Then in all the racing we were doing, Springfield won and Frank finished in second. It took my daughter about, I don't know, 30 minutes to compose herself. She was inconsolable. Frank lost. It seemed inconceivable that Frank lost. There was something magical about the fact that this marble that she'd picked, that I didn't even seem to recognize, <clears throat> that she had claimed as her own and named as her own, and that had won every race that had ever been in, much to my shock and surprise, to the degree that I was even changing the track around to try to see if this marble should have been the best one from my childhood. We just didn't know it. Um, when she finally lost in competitive game play with Hot Wheels track and marbles, and Frank didn't win at all, It took her a while to adjust. But the reality is, if there was a Hall of Fame for marble racing, I have no doubt that Springfield would be in there. I have some doubt about magic. That marble of my sister's didn't do as well over time. It didn't stay as pure and clean. And and getting a little bit of a chip in you, not having a good, clean surface is just, it's death to a racing marble, right? Now, the other entry in the Hall of Fame, and perhaps the first inductee in the Marble Racing Hall of Fame, at least in my house, would be... Frank. Now, maybe it's just plain silly to talk about even the concept of a marble racing hall of fame. And the very idea that you would take a toy designed for putting matchbox or hot wheels cars on and racing them, you know, typically in a circle of some sort. What are you doing putting marbles on that track? I'll tell you what you're doing. You're exercising imagination. When you take the scraps and pieces of all those different board games and just as a kid, tell your siblings or tell your, you know, your friends that we're going to make a new game out of this with our own set of rules. You're using a level of imagination that I don't see enough of today. And if this inappropriate conversation today is going to have any seriousness to it whatsoever, it's this. I fear that we have a generation on our hands that if they found a lot of pieces of fully functional but very old Hot Wheels track and a bag of marbles they'd put them in the trash, not have the first clue about what to do with them.
since I'm dealing with nostalgia today, um, I want to cite a different drummer that I've mentioned the work of before on the episode about classic made for TV movies in the 1970s and the TV show, the series called ABC movie of the week. Gerald Friedman is the director of my all time favorite made for TV film. It's not dual. That's Steven Spielberg. It's not Brian's song either. It's a sci-fi horror thriller adventure film on a very tight budget called A Cold Night's Death. I don't know whether to speak to whether something like A Cold Night's Death being on YouTube is okay or not. Is that legal? Is that proper? Is that appropriate? I don't know. Theoretically, there's some sort of copyright ownership being held by ABC Films or, or uh, the Spelling family who executive produced the work. I don't presume to you know, ascribe the uh, Christopher Knopf screenplay or Gerald Friedman's direction as where the copyright probably lives. But right now, if you go to YouTube.com, you can look up A Cold Night's Death and watch that made-for-TV movie from the 70s in seven 10-minute segments. It's roughly a 74-minute film. And a great one. A fantastic character study with... Eli Wallach and Robert Culp, playing research scientists at an Arctic facility, or a mountaintop facility as it turns out, where things are not going well, something mysterious is at play, and sinister forces may be at play, and perhaps even supernatural. As a kid, A Cold Night's Death was an adventure where scientists were, were fighting with each other and trying to find out what was you know sort of haunting them. It was almost a ghost story type of an atmosphere. As an adult, this thing's a magnificent character study with two of the better actors of my lifetime, Eli Wallach from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and Twelve Angry Men, and Robert Culp, which I, I would have known him from the TV show I Spy, probably as much as anywhere else, really, really dueling with each other as performers in you know a film that they probably had every reason to believe would show twice. Uh, once originally on the ABC uh, network for Movie of the Week, and maybe once again a rerun. And to be honest with you, if they had come in with that expectation, they would have been right on target. Because until this YouTube appearance, I don't think that you could just dial up a copy of A Cold Night's Death. It's not the kind of thing you're going to find for sale. If if it doesn't get released originally on VHS, it's not going to be available to rebuy on, on eBay, right? To my way of thinking, this is a DVD that needs a proper reissue. And that, I think, is perhaps true of other films directed by Gerald Friedman. This man left an impression on me, and I think probably his pilot for the TV series The Psychiatrist, God Bless the Children, or some of the episodes of that particular show might not hold up today. They would probably strike me as being heavy-handed and dull. I know that rewatching old episodes of uh, Night Gallery is a bit hit and miss, and that probably some of them I would... I would like better than others, and he directed a handful or so of Night Gallery segments along the way. So this is the director who's working in kind of in kind of my my genre, so to speak. But to me, nothing better than a cold night's death. At some point as an adult, I may go back and revisit the Kansas City Bomber, which is one of the few films that he directed that was made for theatrical release, if I'm not mistaken, starring Raquel Welch. But if you take the Raquel Welch out of the roller derby film, I suspect that not much is left. And um, for those of, you know, for people who've been paying a lot of attention to films released lately, Roller Derby has finally been put on film in a much more proper manner than the Kansas City Bomber. In fact, I think probably if you compare the the few scenes in the movie Medium Cool with the Kansas City Bomber, um, that Medium Cool would have come out on top as well. 
So am I citing Gerald Friedman as somebody who is worthy of honor? I don't know. I haven't seen enough of his stuff. Clearly, I'm not going to be comparing him to Steven Spielberg when it comes to this kind of popular adventure fair, and I don't regard him anywhere near as highly as the other different drummers that I've cited for film direction, people like Luis Manuel or Joel and Ethan Cohen. But he has the distinction of having directed something that, at that point in my childhood, left that kind of an impression on me that it stuck with me to this day. On rewatching A Cold Night's Death recently, I knew where it was heading. Now, part of it is because I don't think that the the mystery is the main genre that this film is playing with. Uh, more of a thriller, more of a chiller, actually, because of the cold weather and the snow outside. But also because I remembered it. Remembered enough about it to sort of piece together, oh, yeah, there's something here I need to remember. And in this case, on my rewatch, I didn't remember everything. There were still some surprises for me, still some mystery to be solved. But the biggest mystery to me is, why in the world would a kid my age remember this movie well enough to hold it in the same kind of esteem that other people held uh, directors like Steven Spielberg? If you had asked me in the late 1970s if I wanted to go to the movie theater to see Close Encounters of the Third Kind, made by the guy who directed Jaws, or on the big screen for the first time ever, A Cold Night's Death, believe it or not, I would have cited with Gerald Friedman, and that alone is probably enough justification to cite Gerald Friedman as a different drummer. Lest anyone get the idea that I've told the most embarrassing stories of my childhood, yeah, far from it. My mother remembers more fondly a, a different set of activity involving hot-wheeled cars and Legos, apparently, and I really my memories of these are not as vivid, honestly. Apparently, uh, it wasn't unusual on a Thanksgiving morning for us to create um, floats with Hot Wheels cars, marbles, and Legos, and decorate them as if it was um, you know Thanksgiving Day Parade, or perhaps... New Year's Day and the Tournament of Roses parade. So she has her own fond memories. I have mine. Mine side more toward the use of vinegar in scientific, quote-unquote, scientific ways. Or bugs, like crickets and locusts. Or marbles. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. The Podbean site has show notes enabled as well at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for walking down this memory lane with me.
music by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.